I kind of woke up from the surgery and suddenly all of these fast food restaurants that I had loved and adored my entire life had become my biggest enemy and I just hated them. And I remember coming home from the hospital that first day I was home from the hospital and I had fallen asleep. I was taking a nap recovering and I woke up and I saw next to my bed a cup of coffee from McDonald's. And I remember just seeing these golden arches and just being so furious because it represented everything that was wrong. Everything that had put me in that position to feel like garbage that I needed to have this surgery to save my life. Hi plant friends and welcome back to another episode of the PBN podcast. I'm your host Robbie Lockie. This week's guest is the plant-based advocate and host of the Physicians Committee's popular The Exam Room podcast, Chuck Carroll, who's widely known as the weight loss champion. At age 26, Chuck Carroll weighed 420 pounds and found any physical activity extremely difficult. At his heaviest, he was eating 10,000 calories a day and suffered from what he described as an addiction to fast food. He had tried countless diets and meal plans without the results that would improve his health in the long run. Even if he managed to lose some weight, it would return not long after due to his food addiction. In 2009, Chuck underwent bariatric surgery, setting the beginning of his weight loss journey that would see him losing over 265 pounds in over a year and conquering his food addiction for good by following a plant-based diet. Chuck now shares insights from his incredible weight loss journey, which has contributed to him feeling healthier than ever before. I'm incredibly excited to welcome Chuck onto this episode of the Plant-Based News Podcast and learn more about his incredible journey. As always, if you like this episode, please don't forget to comment, like, and share. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It really helps get the message out there. Let's get to the episode. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast, Chuck. Real pleasure to sit down and finally hear your story, my friend. Uh, the pleasure's all mine. Thank you so very much for having me. You know that I lost 265 pounds, but... I love telling people how I did that, and hopefully it inspires other people to follow suit. At my heaviest, yeah, I was 420 pounds, and I'm 5'6 on a good day, on a good day. So that's like a 66-inch waist, that's a size 6L shirt, 6XL, and I, was, I wasn't even 30. I was like 26 years old when I got to my heaviest, and I could already feel my chest tighten when I walked, like just across the street, profusely sweating, had to stop. I just, I didn't feel good and I didn't feel good about myself. So before we get started and learn about all the amazing things you're doing with your life today, I'd like to ask my guests this one question, which is where did it all begin for you with veganism and plant-based? Where did you discover this lifestyle? Would you believe if I told you it was actually a WWE wrestler who turned me on to this? A gentleman uh, by the name of Austin Aries, uh, he was one of their champions at the time in the cruiserweight division. He has been eating a plant-based diet for years and had just released a book. He called it his plant-powered journey to the big time. I was interviewing him as part of my job. I was a news reporter, and he's like, hey, you know, Chuck, I know that you're really health conscious. You try to take care of yourself. You should really look into this whole being vegan thing. And I was like, I've heard about it. I don't really know a whole heck of a lot about it. And he's like, well, you know, read the book and then go and watch. And he listed off a few documentaries. And sure enough, I was like, oh my God, suddenly... This weight loss journey of mine isn't just about weight loss anymore. It's about so many other things and a whole bunch of stuff just clicked. And had it not been for this conversation with the professional wrestler of all things, I would have never been sitting in this chair talking to you today. 
Amazing. I mean, it's isn't incredible how the way in which people find this lifestyle is so varied and diverse. Like you, I've spoken to so many different people, and people enter the conversation in so many, many diverse and different ways. And it's it's always so inspiring to hear how people find it. It shows up in all kinds of curious and bizarre ways. But going back in time, I'd love to hear about this pivotal moment, this journey for you, because you know, weight loss is a central part of of what you do and your work. You know, it's such a sensitive subject to a lot of people and there's a lot of perceptions uh, about weight that stem from societal issues like body image, diet and culture. Our diet is obviously so deeply entwined with our physical health, our mental health. You've built this amazing platform and, this, and you continue this fantastic conversation about weight loss and the journey of weight loss. Because for many people, it is a journey. It's a it's a deep internal journey. It's an external journey. But I'd love to hear about that 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 process, what you went through and how you completely transformed your life and that what led you to where you are today. Yeah, man, it's it's a long story. How much time do we have? Because, uh, uh, I mean, we, we got some things to talk about. The Battle of the Bulge. Many face it at some point in their lives and try to work to change it. It can seem like a losing battle or one that can't be won, but our next guest was more than 400 pounds and developed a plan that worked for him. And Chuck Carroll is here this morning to share his story and his weight loss journey. Good morning, Chuck. I want to begin with when we just saw that picture before the break of you 400 pounds. When you see that picture and you see yourself today, what goes through your mind? I, well, first, I mean, it was really hard to see that picture for a long time because I was ashamed, really, of being that heavy. And at this point, you know, I've lost this weight six years now and it's hard for me to even recognize the person in that picture but still I carry that with me every day and it, it inspires me still to keep moving forward and, and maintain this weight loss so yeah I I did not always look like this uh, my health was not always this good my health was quite poor for many 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 years at my heaviest Robbie I was 420 pounds and I'm five, 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 six on a good day, right? So a really short kind of a guy. I had a 66 inch waist and I was wearing a six XL shirt. I was in my early to mid twenties at this point and my health had deteriorated to the point where I couldn't walk more than a few feet without feeling like my heart was going to stop literally we use this analogy, it feels like an elephant is sitting on my chest. And that is exactly what it felt like. I could not catch my breath to save my life. And I'm just sweating profusely. And I would have to walk a few steps, stop, catch my breath, walk a few more, stop, and just keep going like that. So it would take an agonizingly long time to get anywhere. And I knew that if I'm already this bad in my early 20s, there's no way I'm going to live to see 30 years old, not just because you would think anybody in that position is about to check out permanently, but because heart disease runs rampant in my family. On my mother's side, my grandfather had already had quadruple bypass surgery on his heart. He had like major blockages, had heart attacks. My own father was having his own heart issues that had a number of procedures. And his father, my grandfather on that side, died before I was even born from a series of heart attacks. And I'm just on the accelerated plan for all of that. And that was a heck of a wake-up call for me because you tell anybody in their 20s, like, well, <laughs> you know, you only have a few years left. They're like, well, wait a minute. I'm supposed to live to this ripe old age. I have a lot of things that I still need to do 
And well, yeah, I mean, there's no way I can fit all that in before I'm 30, not to mention my quality of life was just in the garbage at that point, you know? It wasn't your typical 20-something experience, even though I was also doing some things in my professional life that I was really enjoying. You know, I was on the radio, but that's part of the story that I hope that we can get into as well. You know, I felt like I needed to be that big character in order to be on the air um, and achieve my professional goals. So that was just one of the little things that I would tell myself to continue fueling what had become a very, very severe junk food addiction. The obesity epidemic is the most important international health problem. By 2030, half the world will be obese or overweight. This is a disaster. It's a man-made tragedy. Earlier in my life, I thought that my weight was all my fault. I felt like a failure and, frankly, unworthy. And it took me a while to really start questioning those beliefs and challenging those thoughts. Like, well, are you really a failure? And the answer is no, I'm not. I'm not. But it took a while to get to that point. Obesity a blob of our era's fantasies caught in a web of prejudice. It prompts scolding for poor choices and accusations of laziness. Omnipotent genes provide an alibi. But what if obesity were a collective failure, not an individual one? The symptom of a free market that hates fat but produces fatsos, an obesogenic society. That kind of weight gain takes time and it's a it's a lifestyle that you are living the world that you are existing within and the culture that you've grown up in is heavily fueled by a lot of very very processed foods surrounded by it uh, when i went to, to the us for the first time i was horrified by how junk food is so heavily marketed to people of all ages at all times and on all in all locations wherever you go you can't escape it you walk into supermarkets and there are aisles and aisles and aisles of crisps or, or chips, I think you guys call them, you know, there are entire aisles of like hundreds of different types of bread where each type of product is filled with, you know, high quantities of dairy and sugar and all these different things. It's almost impossible not to be overweight in the US. Was that process something that you felt sort of almost consumed by, like not processed, but that environment? Because almost like a sort of fish in, in the water, you can't escape it. Yeah, but because I was kind of born into it, as are the majority of people in this country, um, it, it was it's completely normal, right? I just assumed that it was this way around the world, even though from time to time we'll hear statistics about how more people in the U.S. are struggling with their weight than the majority of other countries. More people here have all of these other health issues than they do elsewhere. It's like, eh, well, you know, whatever. I don't really know why that is. But then you know, you kind of get those blinders taken off and you start to see things kind of for what they truly are. And you start to understand why things are playing out differently in different parts of the world. Yeah. I mean, once you realize that it's really hard to unring that bell. And so now it's kind of inverted. Whereas what was once completely normal to me, I now realize is anything but normal. But 
I'm very much in the minority in there. There's only, you know, a, a, a small percentage of the population that kind of sees things now for what they truly are in terms of the food that we're putting into our system. So like we're kind of viewed almost as the outsiders in this this health crusade. Uh, whereas, you know, we can tell somebody, well, even though something's listed as being light or healthy, if you flip it over, you look at that ingredients list, it's not the best thing for you. So sure, there may be fewer calories, there may be fewer carbs in there. We're very carb phobic here in the States. It, you know, you're really going to wind up doing more damage to yourself in the long run. And you may even wind up gaining more weight for a whole bunch of other reasons. But just because somebody slaps a label on there that says light or healthy, people buy into that. And, you know, we've got all kinds of issues. And yeah, I mean, you've got potato chips or crisps for days. And that's just the start of it, man. I mean, everything from a very, very, very early age is marketed toward, you know, getting consumers to eat more and more and more of these things. And so it's no surprise that I got hooked on it when I was still in elementary school. So now are millions of other kids. You just see those obesity rates, whether it's for children or adults. I mean, they're just skyrocketing, man. It's it's almost half of the entire adult population here now is overweight. Three quarters are or, or, or almost obese. Three quarters are, in fact, already overweight. I mean, we got ourselves a real situation here. It was hell and torture for me to dig out of it. And that means that it's going to be hell and torture for everybody else in that position to dig out of it too. And we got a lot of work to do in order to do that. Sadly, at the moment, I don't mean to be a bucket of cold water here, but we're fighting a real uphill battle, man. Right now, there are 2 billion people, uh, adults and children, who are overweight or obese. This doesn't happen by magic. It takes work. You need to look at who it is that is driving that process. In the first years of the 21st century, Western countries declared war on obesity to no avail. Experts estimate that by 2030, there will be 250 million obese children in the world. Have our governments taken the right tack? It's a, like trying to escape the vortex of a black hole, I often say, because it seems impossible. But as long as there are people such as yourself who are able to escape it, I think it is possible. But speaking of that escape, tell us how you did it. Because obviously it wasn't instant, it wasn't overnight. There was a process involved, uh, I believe, some surgery, but you also began on a plant-based diet and completely changed your life. So what was the sort of time frame between your surgery and your your change and also your mindset? Because you must have needed a mindset change because it's all very well changing something within your body, but you also have to change what you're eating and what you're living on as well to make real change within your lifestyle as well. For sure. And I, I don't shy away from talking about the fact that, that I had surgery. And I actually welcome the opportunity because I think that a lot of people don't quite understand it yet. I think that they, a lot of people still feel like it's a cheat. It's a, you know, fix it quick kind of a thing. And it's anything but. Um, if you go and you pull the studies and you look at the long-term success rates of it, you'll see that, you know, people over uh, over time, just as they do with any diet, will begin to regain that weight. And when you go in for a consultation, even with the surgery initially, and you're thinking about having it, the surgeon, my surgeon told me like, look, man, if this one doesn't work, come on back, we'll do a second surgery on you. All right, we'll, we'll shrink your stomach a second time. And why is that? Well, it's because the stomach is like a balloon, right? It, it can expand. So the more you eat, the more it stretches back out. 
you know, and so if you go back to eating those highly palatable foods that we were just talking about, you know, the junk food aisle, the fast food, all of that stuff where you're going to crave it more and more and more, and you're going to want to push yourself past full. Well, then guess what? You're going to regain that weight happened to members of my family, happened to my, my dear friend who actually recommended my surgeon to me. Unfortunately, this person put all of her weight back on and then some as well, you know? And, and so when you look at the studies, I just really caution people to be like, okay, these people shouldn't be vilified because they went the surgical route. And most doctors will absolutely tell you the same thing. Mm, there's huge risk as well, right? Huge, huge risk uh, to no, your life. I mean, I mean, yeah. And, and the risk depends on the type of procedure that you're having, but yeah, I mean, so you're already, somebody in that position is probably in very poor health. I mean, like I was 20, it was literally just a couple of days after my 27th birthday that I had my procedure and I had been on high blood pressure <laughs> medication for over a decade at that point. And again, that's just that's just one example. Everybody who goes in for that procedure is going to have at least one serious health issue happening to them, right? So that already puts them in that high risk category. And then you're going in, and you know you are quite literally, you know, reworking your your insides, right? And so like that's a that's a major procedure that does carry a major risk. But here's why people opt for it, and here's why I opted for it. It's because I told you at the beginning. I had things that I wanted to do in life. I was on an accelerated plan toward death. And at that point, I knew that if I did not do this, I would not live to be 30 years old. That is beyond anything else, one heck of a motivating factor. And that is why I opted to do that. And I don't regret my decision because clearly I'm here today. I thought when I went to have that, that I was going to buy time. And so, yes, I would live to see 30, but at least, you know, by the point where I would have regained all of that weight, I would have been close to 40. I would have had another decade, another 10 years to accomplish some things. And I could go to my grave saying that I have tried everything. I mean, by the grace of God or whoever it is that you pray to, I, I went on this incredible health journey and, you know, just as luck would have it one day had that conversation with Austin that put me in the chair that I am here today, where I no longer have to worry about regaining all of that weight. I don't fear that I will be that 420 pound individual again. You know, I, I know that now I have a long and healthy life ahead of me. But again, man, the thing that I want to stress is the food that we're eating is so addictive that people do have to resort to measures as extreme as having weight loss surgery just to have a decent shot at breaking that addiction. But see, now you got me going because now that opens up a whole other box of, of, of worms, as we say here in the States, because... People aren't trained, even after doing something as radical as having bariatric surgery, on what eating a healthy diet truly means. Perfect example, perfect, last thing I'll say about this, perfect example, I had lost a, a lot of weight, and my surgeon was like, Chuck, you've done great. It's time for you to you know, start reintroducing some foods into your diet. You need to eat a hamburger. Not you should, not you could, but you need to oh, eat a hamburger. Oh, my God. That's insane. I'm telling you, man, I wasn't even vegan at the time, but I, I distinctly remember looking at him across the desk and I'm just like, are you serious right now? Like you are literally telling somebody who has been sober for a year to have a sip of beer. What you have just said makes no sense, but there was that major disconnect. And so when the doctor is prescribing 
this kind of garbage food for somebody, what do you think the patient's odds of success actually are? Minimal. So obviously I don't want to get into the area of like conspiracy here, but these industries that provide these surgeries, they make vast sums of money off illness. Now, of course, doctors are trained and they spend many, many years and, you know, seven plus eight, nine years studying. And it's a very specialist skill to be able to perform bariatric surgery. However, sometimes I really question the integrity of many of the people in the profession in the specific, especially the privatized medical world, particularly in America, where it isn't in people's interest for people to be healthy and to be to be empowered with their own health by eating well and being lean and being active. Oh, it's almost as if, you know, that kind of thing makes me really rage. I feel, I feel, I actually feel angry about that, that people such as yourself who have been weaned off damaging foods by something as extreme as bariatric surgery, and then to go back to the doctor who performed that surgery, and then to be advised to consume the food, the very foods that put you in that situation in the first place. Yeah. How much of that is happening? How, how common is that? I mean, it's it's rampant. I, I will say though, like because nutrition isn't taught in, in medical school. I mean, like that that really is kind of the biggest issue. But I, I don't think that every doctor out there, I don't think that every bariatric surgeon or any kind of other doctor for that matter, is corrupt and saying, well, how much money can I bilk from this patient? I don't think it's like that. It's it's the larger picture is that this is what they are taught. And just just in the way, like how I was born into a system where there's nothing but junk food and fast food and all of that garbage that we were talking about at the beginning of the show was so normalized, that's all I knew. And so if this is all these other doctors know is to cut and then cut again and not talk about nutrition, well, you can't really fault them and call that corruption. The corruption comes at, at a much higher level than that. I don't think that individual doctors, the majority of them are corrupt. I think that what we have here is a system that is severely broken and needs a lot of work. And so like, that's one of my big privileges. One of the biggest joys I get from doing my show, the exam room is having the opportunity to have an audience that uh, has quite a few doctors in it you know, who are picking up tidbits of information with every single episode and then are able then to pass that on to their patients, you know? And, and to me, like, that's the biggest privilege is like flipping that switch. Because once we can get the switch flipped with the doctors, we can really start to make some real progress in this world. But right now we're still at a point where, you know, doctors are saying, well, diet doesn't matter. And it's just like, oh my God. <laughs> I, I hear you, Chuck. I, and, and I want to believe in the good in people as much as you do. But I do, you know, with I just quickly looked up the cost of bariatric, the average bariatric surgery in the US is like $23,000. And I'm not sure how much yours costs, but you know, that's a huge amount of money for, for, for people to be able to pay. And like, it's a bit like when you go into the mechanic, into the workshop to have your car fixed. And, you know, of course, not all mechanics are, are crooked. But you know, there is a, your body in many ways is a bit is a vehicle, it carries you, doesn't it? it carries you through life. And sometimes I really question whether, you know, when we switch to a plant based diet, we can dramatically reduce many of the leading killers of human beings, as you know, and I and I just sometimes wonder whether a lot of these industries, you know, they are aware of the damage that 
our food is having to our bodies. They can see it. They can see it physically in people. They know what the damage is having to our organs. And the, and the solutions by modern medicine is often surgeries that cost vast amounts of money for the average person. So it's just sometimes when you connect the dots, it ca you can't help but question whether these people really are making the decisions based on financial incentive or they really are thinking about the patient. So forgive me for, for being no, uh, a pessimist. You know, it's, I, it's I cool. do. It's cool. But th think about it th like this, right? So say, um, here, here's the way I view it, right? So say you want to go to a music festival, right? Mm -hmm. The person you're buying the ticket from doesn't set the cost of the ticket, right? They don't set the price just as your surgeon does not set the price of the surgery. That comes from somebody much higher up the level and probably maybe not even somebody at the hospital where they work, right? So that's what I'm talking about. It's at a much higher level than the individual doctors. The individual doctors in a lot of cases, you know, they're, they're just, they're there to do one function and one function only, and that's the surgery, right? They're, they're not the ones that are, you know, really, really getting super rich off of this. Some are. Some are. Mm. You're saying it's more the hospitals and the system, which is all deeply entwined with insurance, this man. Yeah, yeah right. hospital executives, all of that. You know, I mean, we're talking like top, top, top level, and that's where that conspiracy stuff gets in, and that's a trick of thing because you never want to come across as somebody who you know is is just talking nonsense and is completely out of their mind. That's not the case. No, of course, because obviously at the end of the day, you know, we do have solutions to these problems and, a, you know, a plant-based diet isn't a conspiracy. It's not, even though there are certain factions within the online space where people believe plant-based diets are a, an attempt to, in, in various reasons, sterilize humanity, uh, <laughs> cause widespread, you know, mental issues. Some of the comment sections in, on plant-based news are, are frankly hilarious when non-vegans come on and think that what we're trying to do the advocacy that we try to do on a daily basis is some kind of sort of government initiative ironically yeah isn't that fun it, it is funny but you know coming back off my little wild tangent there and i love my little wild tangents let's get back to the sort of the topic which is really how you manage to you know, transform your health with the support of obviously of modern medicine, but also nutrition. You didn't switch to a plant-based diet immediately after surgery. It did take some time. But how did that happen? Because obviously you talked about, you know, how you discovered in the beginning, but it, it's not an easy process, especially again, growing up and living in a society where meat and animal products are so ubiquitous. They are in every meal, they're everywhere. You can't escape them. How did you build a support network or a framework with around you to, to make sure that, you know, this new lifestyle was something that definitely sticked with you know you stuck with it well here's the thing man I, I i i guess like i'm kind of an outlier with this in that i didn't care if i had a support network or not i was so headstrong about doing this that i, I didn't care what anybody else said i didn't care about their opinion i was going to judge or make all of my decisions based off of what had happened previously with me what worked what had not worked and so i was going to go that route and and i had members of my own family you know, question like, are you sure this is something that you want to do? It's probably not the best route. And I was like, well, you've never gotten up to 420 pounds either. So <laughs> yeah, man, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna do me, as I like to say. And, and so that's, that's what I did. But the journey, it wasn't, you know, straight from point A to point B, there were a lot of zigs and zags on there. Two things really helped me out initially. And one was something that I never thought was going to happen. I hadn't imagined that in a million years was that I just, I kind of woke up from the surgery and suddenly all of these fast food restaurants that I had loved and adored my entire life had become my biggest enemy. 
and I just hated them. And I remember coming home from the hospital that first day I was home from the hospital and I had fallen asleep. I was taking a nap recovering and I woke up and I saw next to my bed a cup of coffee from McDonald's. And I remember just seeing these golden arches and just being so furious because it represented everything that was wrong, everything that had put me in that position to feel like garbage that I needed to have this surgery to save my life, right? Why would anybody bring that to me? And and even that, I mean, we're just talking about a black cup of coffee, no cream, no sugar, nothing like that, just a black cup of coffee. But it was the arches that got me all fired up. And so I, I took that mentality and I've carried it with me ever since. And so I have never, ever, ever, ever patronized a fast food restaurant since then. Have not done it, will not do it. They will never get another another cent from me. But beyond that, I also, once I had lost a lot of weight, initially began dating um, a girl who I had a crush on back in high school. And um, she turned out to be quite a holistic nutrition nut. And that was very much to my benefit. She was not plant-based, but she definitely got me started eating in that more whole food direction. And so that kind of opened the door to me um, a little bit. And I started exploring a little bit more and a little bit more, learned about kimchi. That was a game-changing moment. And and then, you know, a few years after that, the conversation with Austin Aries happened. And like, that's when everything kind of turned on its head. But if people ask, like, was there one thing as like, yeah, you know, it's it's not ever going back to eating junk food. It's not ever going back to the drive-through. Because I recognized at one point, and, and I hope that we do talk about this, it was, it was the grand epiphany that I was hooked on these foods just as a cocaine addict would be hooked on cocaine or an alcoholic was hooked on booze. And if I reintroduce that into my system, the odds of me putting all of that weight back on were extremely high. And I didn't want to do that. Right. Which is does lead me very nicely on to the next question, which is about addiction and mental health. You know, our bodies and our minds are inextricably linked. You know, we are not separate from who we are in our minds and who we think and perceive ourselves to be as people. And the, the emotional connection between food and eating and weight loss and obesity is something that often isn't talked about. People may see an overweight person on the street and just look at them and think, oh, they're, uh, they're lazy or they can't be bothered to stop eating or they, you know, they, they've got a, a sort of an attitude about food that, you know, isn't the same as me because I might go to the gym or I might exercise, but not realizing that the emotional and the mental state of some people is such that it makes it very hard for them to just put down the food or put down the burger or just not eat that bagel, right? And the same with alcohol. Alcoholics can't just stop drinking alcohol. You can't just say to someone who is addicted, oh, just stop doing it because there is a part of the mind or brain that is so entwined with that substance that it, 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 it's, as I said earlier, it's a bit like a black hole. It's a, it's a vortex that you just cannot break. Addiction, basically, physiologically, if you boil it down to its essence, is dopamine downregulation in the nucleus accumbens. And it's, you know, it's important for sex, it's important for eating, it's important, um, you know, for, for the basic drives that are just so foundational um, that they had to be sort of hardwired in to make sure that we didn't forget to do these things, right? And these are the parts of the brain that can be hijacked by um, sort of artificially strong stimuli, right? Like, like internet porn 
or donuts, right? Things that just didn't exist back in the day. Because your brain has adapted to, to need that much stimulation just to be normal. So this is what people who've never been really addicted to anything don't get, is that the addict isn't using to get high anymore. The addict is using to get normal. Normal, like, yeah. Trying to get back to baseline. I'm glad like, you made that point. You obviously had surgery. You you worked with plant-based diets, but what ha- what changed within your mind? Like, how did you, as a person, you talked about the golden arches, which was so interesting, so fascinating. How to how that symbol of fast food, really, it's a global symbol of fast food, evoked such an ev- a visceral reaction within you, an emotional reaction within you to to who you were and to who you are today. But I'd love to hear more, as you said, about the addiction, about the sort of mental and mind, the mindset, and then the emotional aspect of this shift, this change in you. Yeah, you know, I think that that visceral reaction, and that's a really good way of describing it, traces back a few years earlier. And when I had just had a lot of success I had just endorsed something called the cookie diet um, as part of my job uh, on the radio. And and Robbie, I can't make this up. I was working for a radio station, Big 100.3 WBIG here in Washington, D.C. So of course, I thought that I had to be Big Chuck in order to be on the air. But one day they came to me and they said, well, look, you know, we have this company that is looking for somebody to endorse their diet. We're going to give you this program for free. And we're going to pay you to lose weight. So I was like, oh my God, jackpot, sign me up. Well, the first day, I'm doing really good on this cookie diet. I will name drop them. It is called the cookie diet. And so uh, I'm like, all right, cool. So I'm going to eat a cookie for breakfast. I'm going to eat a cookie for lunch. And then I'm going to eat this sensible dinner, which I never really clearly defined what that meant, but it was just a sensible dinner. And that's going to help me lose weight. Great. So day one, I'm motivated, I'm happy to do it, and I get through it, no problem. Day two, something like starts changing with me, right? Like I'm, I'm a little bit more irritable, I'm a little bit more cranky, and my brain just kept saying, go to Taco Bell go to Taco Bell. It sounds crazy, right? But it's it's kind of like the it same doesn't. type of it's 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 the same type of craving I got um when I was trying to quit smoking. I'm an ex-smoker as well, right? It was like, man, I want a cigarette. I want a cigarette. But in this case it was like, man, I want Taco Bell. I want Taco Bell. And so throughout the day that craving built and I got a little bit more cranky, but I'm still being paid to do this this cookie diet. Taco Bell was not part of that sensible dinner for sure. So I didn't go to Taco Bell. Day three, this is when it hits the fan. I go from just being like irritable and cranky and craving to just like being a full-blown jerk. You could have just said, hi, you know, I hope you have a nice day. And I would have been like, screw you and screw your family. Get out of my face, right? Like I was just angry at the world. And, and But then like I started to feel physically sick too. Like I was coming down with a cold or a flu and I got off of work. And I came home and I didn't even bother going to the gym that day, right? Because that was that was part of the plan as well. I just got in bed and I covered my head with the covers and I just laid there and I started to sweat a little bit. And it was just like, what is happening to me? Like, I've clearly got this bug all the while. All still I can think about is, daggone, I want some freaking Taco Bell. And if I don't get it, I'm going to lose my stuff. And so like that just built for hours. And then like, eventually I get to this, this point where the fury had built up so much. I get up out of bed feeling sick and I punch my fist through a wall because all I wanted was Taco Bell. And then I was like, damn it. I just punched my fist through a wall and I still want Taco Bell. So boom, I punched my fist then through a door. Guess what? Still wanted Taco Bell. My hand hurt, 
but I still wanted Taco Bell. So even though now I'm being paid to lose weight and endorse the cookie diet, I devised this plan to sneak out in the middle of the night and go to Taco Bell, a 24-hour Taco Bell, and I had a standing order. They knew me so well, they would just see my car pull into the lot, and they'd like, hey, Chuck, you want your usual? I was like, absolutely. And it was a $20 standing order. And mind you, this was like 13, 14 years ago at this point. You know, So $20 then is probably a $30 order now, every single day. And, and the order never changed. And if I didn't get Taco Bell, man, I was cranky pants. But this was cranky pants times a thousand. But when I finally got back that night, that third night, and I took that first bite, the craziest thing happened. It was like suddenly everything was at peace. It was, it was a physical sensation where it was just like a warm rush. I mean, just literally just course through my veins so fast and like all of that anger and and that sickness it went away like that in a snap and and so like one i felt a lot better immediately but two then i was i guess that was kind of the great awakening the epiphany and that holy crap i've got a real problem right i'm hooked i knew enough about addiction at that point to recognize like holy crap this is man this is like I'm battling a, a real demon here. And, and so even though I knew now that that type of food was my drug, it was my alcohol, it was fueling me to an early grave, it was still years before I was ready to do anything about it. And so long after the cookie diet wrapped that endorsement and I regained all of the weight and then some got up to the heaviest point I had ever been in my entire life, so much so that my friends tried to organize an intervention for me because of my weight. Again, drawing the parallels between substance abuse and food addiction. So there's this intervention that was organized. Despite that, I still continued down the unhealthy road, and it would be years before I would eventually wind up resorting to an extreme measure to curtail my food addiction. So you were asking about why I had that visceral reaction to the golden arches. It traces back to that night and the recognition that that food had me hooked and I wanted no part of it any longer because if I was going to do something as extreme as surgery, I sure as hell was not going to do anything that would force me to need that second surgery, which was so generously offered to me by my surgeon on my first visit. Wow, Chuck, what a what a story. And you really took me with you on that. And, you know, even though I haven't been through something as, as sort of intense and extreme as you have, every day I go to the supermarket, especially if I'm hungry, I feel the pull of the desire to pick up that bag of chips, those bag of sweets, those chocolate bars. Every day, there, there's always this sort of voice really sort of shouting at me, salt, sugar, fat, oil. Obviously, it's not speaking in that language, but it's that pull to these products. You know, every day that I do this work, the more I do become frustrated by the food system because everything about the modern world that we live in is in a way set up to make us fail when it comes to food. It is in every aspect of our lives, as I said in the beginning of the conversation, billboards, magazine ads, television ads. <laughs> it's even in some computer games. It's absolutely everywhere. You know, the odds are really stacked against us when it comes to eating healthy and really trying to maintain a healthy body weight. But 
we do have some great tools. We do have a global movement for change, which is the plant-based revolution, which is the vegan community. Though that being said, vegan doesn't always necessarily mean healthy. Plant-based nutrition is a powerful tool in our tool belt. Whole food plant-based nutrition is a powerful tool in our tool belt to bring real change to people's lives. You know, there are so many great players out there and you obviously have had the wonderful fortune of speaking to many of them on your fantastic podcast. Welcome to the Exam Room Live, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hello, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. We appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. And we're finally going to answer the question today. Which diet is best when it comes to weight loss? Is it high fat? Is it low fat? Is it no fat? Is it high carb, no carb, vegetarian, pescatarian, keto, South Beach? I don't know. But what we're going to do is crown a king today. And here with the Royal Insight with us are doctors Vanita Rahman and dietitian Karen Smith, both of them experts when it comes to weight loss. And then also, after we've crowned the best diet, we're going to delve a little bit deeper into it. So we're also going to be talking about how much you should be eating and how often you should be exercising. And is that more important than diet? And which, which foods, which ones are going to speed up your metabolism? We're also going to be looking at diet soda and why probably that isn't exactly what you want to be drinking when you're trying to lose weight. And also we're going to be talking about mindset and how important that can be when it comes to not just losing weight, but keeping it off, avoiding those pitfalls that we so often find ourselves just wrapped in the middle of that just derail our success. And it's, oh my goodness gracious, is it ever so frustrating? So mindset is super important. I'd love to hear about this podcast. And for those who don't know about it, who haven't already listened to it, how did it, you get involved in it? And, and what is involved on a, on a daily basis in the sense of like, what do you talk about? You know, what kind of issues do you address? And what are some of the most surprising and interesting things that you've learned on this journey as you've really dived into this incredible world of nutrition? Oh man, yeah. The exam room is something that I'm I'm just I feel so fortunate to be able to do and, and call that my job. And it it came about because after, you know, I, I lost the the weight and I just kind of got this surge of confidence where I was like, Well, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was like, Oh, okay, well, I want I want to cover sports. So I started doing that for a while, started covering American football, and then eventually got hired to cover actual, you know, regular news. But that kind of takes a toll on your mental health too, because you know it seems like here all we're covering day in and day out are negative stories. Somebody drowned, somebody got shot, somebody got stabbed, somebody's house burned down. You know, somebody needs funding because their life is you know hell. You know, somebody got arrested. You know, because they're corrupt and they're messing up other people's lives. Like it's just all negative stuff, man. And so after doing that for a number of years, even though I was able to see some of the most incredible sights that that people ever did, you know, it, it was kind of a privilege to to see a lot of this stuff. But it takes a toll on you, and and so like that privilege does not outweigh the fact that you're in a negative mindset every day. So I was like, I want to do something more positive. And so I pitched the physicians committee, the idea of doing a podcast because I become familiar with them from a few years earlier when I was asked to participate in a, in a public service campaign that they were doing um, when I was still covering sports. It was myself and an American football player by the name of Adam Carricker, uh, who did uh, a piece for them. And so I was like, I need to do something better something healthier, something that will make me happy and in turn can actually help a lot of other people. And and thus, you know, the exam room was born. So I just kind of took my media background and my expertise there, merged it with my passion for health and helping people 
and kaboom, you know, now I get to talk to other people who have had these radical transformations like I have. And the doctors who are on, you know, the leading edge of a lot of this this nutrition science that continues to emerge. Um, you know, doctors like Dr. Neil Barnard and Dr. Dean Ornish, um, T. Colin Campbell, Kim Williams, I mean, Dr. Will Bolsowitz, you know, bestseller, New York Times bestseller, Fiberfield. I mean, just extraordinary individuals who are really ushering in a healthy era and and opening so many eyes. And it's a privilege to now have this enormous audience with the show. Uh, that has this ravenous appetite for health. And I get the biggest kick out of hearing from people, Robbie, and maybe you do too, you know, who who take little nuggets that they've heard on the show, or in your case, maybe on your podcast or have read on your website and have shared it with um, other people, whether it be their friends and their family, and they then, you know, start to see their health begin to improve. And just to know that like, you're kind of the jumping off point for that, right? You planted that little seed that has really kind of started to change that person's life. To me, that's better than any paycheck in the entire world. And while I'm not naive to say that things are going to change overnight, I am 1000% certain that we are starting to make a difference. And slowly but surely the tide is turning. And so it may not be in our lifetime, man, but eventually I I hope that there will be a time when you go into the grocery stores and it's not just junk food for miles and miles and miles and miles. I want to see three quarters of the store be the produce section and, you know, very minimal amounts of all of this processed junk food out there that has really gotten us into this enormous health pickle that we're in. Mm, no, it's a it's an amazing podcast, and I'll link it in the show notes. Um, there are many episodes, so you have a lot to catch up on if you haven't started. How many episodes so far? Oh gosh, uh, what did we release today? It was like something like our three hundred and forty second wow. episode, or something like that. Yeah, weekly, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Yep, yep. So uh, yeah, we just did episode forty three of season five, number three hundred forty two overall, um, and that's a conversation with. Um, an epidemiologist uh, by the name of Dr. Andy Chan, and uh, he he co-authored this this incredible study. This is what I love about the show, too. Side note, it, just the extraordinary science, not necessarily all related to weight loss. This this guy was part of a study that looked at the diets of more than six hundred thousand people early in the pandemic, and was able to ascertain that the healthier person's diet was, the less likely they were to become severely ill with COVID nineteen or even, you know, become infected whatsoever, right? So then you've got that super immune response. And it turns out those who ate the healthiest plant-based diet were afforded the most protection. And, you know, when you're talking about data from more than 600,000 people, like that's pretty hard to refute. And so to have somebody who's on the leading edge of that come on the show and talk so eloquently about it, I get the biggest kick out of that, man, because that's news that people need. People don't need to know that their neighbors, you know, have been shot and, and this and that. No, man, people need to know how to take charge of their own health. People need that happier news. They need that hope. And so like, that's kind of what the show is delivering. Mm, amazing. And please do make sure to let us know when you discover these exciting studies or these new innovations, because we'd love to write about them on Plant Based News. And our audience are always very excited, as you say, to share with friends and family. You know, our audience aren't all vegan and plant based, but, you know, those that are are very passionate about this lifestyle and they want to help their friends and family to, you know, reverse disease, to, to live healthier, more vital lives. And, you know, this diet can, this lifestyle can definitely do that. I guess I want to turn the conversation more sort of to the 
the bigger picture, which is, you know, governments and policy and, you know, the, you know, something broader than us as individuals, it can often be very easy to feel completely disempowered by the way the world is today. Um, but there are people, you know, in governments that are trying to bring change, you know, as you say, it can be a bit of a a tidal wave that you can sometimes feel a bit sort of swamped by. But in all your work, you know, how much is going on, especially in the US, like how much stuff is going on with government? I know um, PCRM does a fair bit of work. I'd love to hear what you think about that and how organizations such as PCRM are working towards bringing change and essentially sort of challenging governments, providing evidence, doing studies. Um, how much of that is actually going on and how how successful is it? Oh man, you know, it's it's actually more successful than you will realize. And again, it's going to be a slow process, but I am here today to tell you 1000% that progress is being made and it's being made every single day. I mean, you look at, you know, not just from a human health standpoint, but you know, so much of our audience also comes at this from an animal advocacy standpoint. And, you know, you see the work that has been done to, you know, stop animal testing in labs, right? Because there are now human relevant, that's the term that gets used, human relevant research methods that um, lead to more precise research and actually speed up um, the research process, right? Because you're kind of cutting out that middleman and you can get right to the heart of the matter. And, and so like, that's that's really exciting because that, that bodes well, not just for animal welfare, but certainly like our own welfare as humans moving forward. So like you, you're talking about taking on government and institutions and we're winning those battles. But then on the health front, I guess here in the States, every five years, uh, we get uh, the dietary guidelines. And, and so those get revamped and it's never everything that you want in there, but there is progress being made every single time, you know? So right now the next go around, the big battle is going to be again with dairy. Um, but you're seeing, you know, more terminology in there about limiting processed meats, red meats, high fat foods, high sodium foods, um, really sugary foods, you know, all of that stuff. They're saying eat less and less and less and less of that, you know, but they're still kind of pushing dairy. So that's, that's our next big battle, but we've already really made tremendous progress in those other areas. And so like, that's, that's fantastic. And so now, even though you and I, we, and, and odds are, if you're listening to this or you're watching this, you're, <laughs> you're probably in a little bit of a plant-based bubble. Like you've sought this out and so, you know, you may think that um, everybody knows about eating plant-based and, and the benefits that come with it, and nothing could be further from the truth, right? But we do know that based off of other, you know, our, our other efforts and industry trends, that plant-based is booming. And that bodes well for so many people as well. And so the metrics do exist to say progress is being made. I'm not naive enough to tell you that it's going to be, you know, accomplished overnight. It's going to take generations to undo everything that's been done. But I do also believe that at some point we will get there because we don't have any, any other choice. You know, we have to get there. Otherwise, it's going to hit the fan on so many levels for our health, the health of the planet, the health of the animals. I mean, just like literally every which way you can imagine it'll hit the fan. I'd like to think that there's enough good in this world where we can make sure that it doesn't. We may get right up to that line, but we'll be able to walk it back. Mm, very well said, Chuck. Regarding kind of the knowledge that you've been acquiring and obviously this conversation you've immersed yourself in for the last several years, is there an appetite from you to 
I guess, solidify your knowledge? Would you ever study, you know, nutrition in more detail as in like, you know, become a dietitian or a nutritionist and advanced nutri- nutrition as in, you know, get some kind of qualification in that sense or, you know, unless you have had it, you've got it already. And I, and I missed that, <laughs> but, <laughs> no. you know, you obviously spend a lot of time talking to a lot of people, but is this something that you would be would you be in your future see yourself you know could we see a dr chuck carroll at some point i mean doctor that's that's pretty lofty uh i I would i would love to um you know i've never actually shared this publicly my initial thought when i was pitching the idea for the exam room one of the ideas that i was kicking around was well maybe i can get them to pick up the cost for me to uh, finish studying to be a dietitian because i was in school at the time but then the show kind of became so big that uh, that it it is resumed being my entire focus. So, do I know if I'm going to go back to school and 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 become a dietitian? I can't say for certain. I think that I'm kind of reaching people on a a much larger level than I would be able to um, working with people individually. And so, I kind of balance that with you know going back to school and 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 finishing everything up there so never say never but i'm very content doing what it is that i'm doing right now that's really good to hear before i let you go i always like to ask my guests this one final question if you were stuck on a desert island chuck and it was just you and a pig obviously you're not going to eat the pig because you're a vegan if i gave you one vegan dish one book and one music album what would you take with you oh lord why is it that the book and the album are the tougher of uh, <laughs> of everything? So the vegan dish, man. Like I'm, I'm such a, um, I, I'm, I'm such an easy guy. Like I, I have such a simple palate. So like the thing that I'm going to eat every day is going to be uh, my kitchen sink salad, which is basically it's a bed of greens, whatever I have in the fridge, with any roasted vegetable that I have in the fridge and sweet potato, and you just kind of like throw that all into this big bowl, and it's a menagerie of just delicious tasting health, right? That has become the one thing that I can't live without. I got to eat that every single day. Now, the book I can't live without. Oh my gosh. I get so many of these. I mean, I'm just, I'm going to be a shill for my guy, Will Bolsowitz, and I'm just going to say fiber fueled right there. All right. Uh, that is an, an amazing book. Um, so that's, that's going to be that. Uh, and check out his new cookbook, by the way, the fiber fueled cookbook. Phenomenal. Eat those sweet potato, black bean burritos. And then the album, I mean, so not a lot of people know this about me either, but I'm kind of a hip hop guy, right? So it's it's gonna have to be something from either Eminem or Jay Z's Black album. I've created a monster, cause nobody wants to see Marshall no more. They want shady, I'm chopped liver. Well, if you want shady, this is what I'll give you. A little bit of me mixed with some hard liquor, some vodka that'll jumpstart my heart quicker than a shock when I get shocked at the hospital by the doctor. When I'm not cooperating, when I'm rocking the table while he's operating. H to the ISO, B to the ISO. That's the anthem, get your damn hands up. H to the ISO, B to the ISO. Not guilty, y'all got to feel me. H to the ISO. Those are those are my two standards. Check that. Jay-Z's Blueprint. That's that's what we're gonna go with. We're gonna go with Blueprint One by Jay-Z. That's gonna be the album. So many good cuts on there. 
Amazing. Thank you, Chuck, for joining us on the PBN podcast. It was a real pleasure to hear your story, my friend. Thank you, my friend. Thanks for joining us, everyone. This is the PBN podcast, and I'll be back next week with more food, fashion, animals, nutrition, and everything in between.